The Incomparable, number 302, May 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm Jason Snell, and it is time for another edition of Old Movie Club. Old Movie Club! In this edition, we are going to be talking about two movies produced by and otherwise creatively involved by Howard Hawks. Possibly directed, or did he? Or did he? Yes. Yes. Uh, His Girl Friday from 1940, which he absolutely directed, and The Thing from Another World from 1951, which Which he uh, absolutely directed. He's not credited as directing. Joining me to talk about the many movies, uh, well, there's only the two, that we're going to talk about tonight are these lovely people. Steve Lutz, hello. Hello there, Jason. Come on in. Close the door! (laughs) Fair point. Monty Ashley. Hi, Monty. Hi, Jason. You know, all you've got to do is lie low and keep your mouth shut. Mm, wise words. David J. Lore, hi. What What do you mean? My name is Duffy. I'm just going to talk this fast for the whole show. Uh-oh. Duffy, I got bad news for you. You have <laughs> diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> the disease. That's what we get for having a guest with a disease. <laughs> Erica Ensign. Uh, I, I'm glad to be here because even 10 minutes is a long time to be away from you guys. Oh, <laughs> Say that again. The Internet's Dr. Drang is back with us again for more old things. Hi, Doc. How's it going? Oh, it's going fine. You know, knowledge is more important than life, Jason. We owe it to the brain of our species to stay here and die. <laughs> All right, I'm in. Oh, that could apply to any podcast. That's, that's like the mission statement host. of the show. And the, yeah. the gentleman who makes this happen picks the movies and tells us what to think, and then we savagely deny him and infuriate him. Uh, rum in the coffee, it's a nasty day. It's Philip Michaels. <laughs> the big sleep. Well, Jason, it was. it's great to be here today. So, Phil, we uh, we watched these two movies. I suppose we should take them chronologically, should we not? Can you tell us why you chose them and sure. anything more about Howard Hawks and why he's the unifying factor here? Well, um, you know, uh, I think Howard Hawks is it, Howard Hawks makes so many great movies. We could have picked any one of them, like The Big Sleep, like um, uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is a very uh, uh, fun, if insubstantial, little musical. Um, Rio Bravo. Rio Bravo. I was about to say there's a nice little uh, late late career John Wayne movie, Rio Bravo, that he did. And mm-hmm. um, uh, But I picked these two because they're my two favorite Howard Hawks movies, although one of them may not be a Howard Hawks movie. So here we are. Well, at the very least, it's produced by him. It says yes. that much in the credits. Yeah, and it was made by his production company. As, 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 in addition to him being produced, he didn't do it for a, a different studio or a different right. outfit. So it's 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 a Howard Hawks operation. Just how much of it involved Howard Hawks might be something we discuss later in a little bit. And are we certain that Letterer, the screenwriter, is not in fact a nom de plume of Howard Hawks? No, he's a real person. Oh no, he took credit when he was involved in this. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a guy. Yeah. He he writes a lot of Howard Hawks' stuff, but is not Howard Hawks. I have never seen him in the same room as Howard Hawks at the same time. Well, he died before you were born, so that's why. Oh, <laughs> that may have something to do with it. They were buried together, though, so... But what? <laughs> no, wait, that's a lie. He, he did write a ridiculous number of Howard Hawks films. Turns so. out they're buried he, together. He's including both of, the, both of the ones tonight. He, uh, he adapted the uh, uh, MacArthur Hecht play for, um, for His Gal Friday, which leads us into our first movie. His Girl Friday, Phil. Uh, what 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 should you tell us about? What do you want to tell us about His Girl Friday? 
Well, it's one of those movies where we're not going to spend a lot of time discussing plot because it's really um, incidental to, yeah, I mm-hmm. think, the, the, the picture itself. Instead, we'll do the treacherous backstory of His Gal Friday, which started life as a play called The Front Page, written by Ben Hecht and uh, Charles MacArthur. Um, they were two ex-Chicago newspaper men, and uh, any influences that their careers in Chicago and corrupt Chicago politicians might have had on their play is uh, purely coincidental. Um, there was a movie, I want to say it was 1928, but I might be off by a few years. I think, I think uh, it was 31. 31. Thank you, David. The Adolf Manju. Adolf Manju and Pat O'Brien. And, um, in that movie, uh, it's, it's the exact same plot, only Walter Burns is the editor, is the managing editor of the, 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 of the paper. And, um, Hildy Johnson is his, uh, male star reporter. And there are uh, many um, origin stories how His Gal Friday came to be. One is that uh, Howard Hawks was just going to remake the front page. And uh, uh, while they were doing the readings for it, he had one of his uh, his female assistants reading the Hildy Johnson part and, and thought, hey, that sounds pretty snappy when it's a when it's when it's a lady doing the exchanges with Walter Burns. Um, the other uh, story um, and both of these are in IMDb trivia because it's dueling, possibly apocryphal <laughs> trivia um, that they had a dinner party and Howard Hawks pulled out the front page script just to show how tightly written and what a great uh, great piece of staging it was and had one of his uh, female guests read the Hildy Johnson part and then the light bulb came over his head and he said say and then Ben Hecht said hey why don't you uh, redo my my thing as a with a woman in the part it's the front page and it's uh, got a got a lady playing the Hildy Johnson part and uh, Hildy is a reporter, and there's a um, there's a uh, execution about to go down mm. with Earl Williams, who may or may not be an anarchist. He's not, and uh, but he is crazy. Yes. Oh man, is he crazy? And um, the corrupt uh, mayor and sheriff are trying to get him executed um, to before election day, so that they can uh, win on anti uh, radical fervor. And um, Hildy and her paper are trying to. Uh, a sell lots of papers and B uh, free him. Uh, one is uh, 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 more important to them than the other. I'll leave it to your imagination as to which. Hildy is in fact leaving the paper because she is going to get married to a fellow named Bruce Baldwin, who's played by Ralph Bellamy in the Ralph Bellamy part as yes. the <laughs> as the nice handsome man who is always spurned it by the end of the picture spoiler alert because he's a giant drip yeah he well, looks, he he looks kind of like uh, ralph bellamy though <laughs> yeah that, that ralph bellamy guy yes guy from the movies is that a consistent bellamy role i don't think i've ever seen him in anything in his youth other than this so i'm unfamiliar but with his that is the prototypical yeah yeah there's this and franklin roosevelt he, he, yes where he plays the, he, he's basically the other fella Ah. Yeah, he's he's in at least one Fred and Ginger film as the other fella. Yeah, as the guy who's decent enough, but but he's no Fred Astaire. He's no Cary Grant. He he's a yeah. boring insurance salesman in this who would like to sweep uh, her away to Albany, yes, <laughs> where they will live their life <laughs> out in Albany. Don't sell him short. He makes five thousand dollars a year in the insurance business. Yeah. They're gonna live with mother. With mother, yeah, just for the first year. The one complication yeah. in this, which I which I had failed to mention, is that Walter Burns used to be married to Hildy Johnson in this version. It would have been uh, strange in the earlier version of the front page, but in this version, <laughs> it was pre code. Yeah, pre code, very pre code. <laughs> um, but um, in, in this version, they used to be married. They're now divorced. 
Um, you get the feeling that Walter Burns would very much like to have Hildy working uh, either back for the paper or being married to him, and he's not quite sure which, but one or the other or both would be fine. Uh, so uh, during this, the, the this movie takes place over the course of an evening, and um, it's Walter Burns trying to trick Hildy into either staying to write a story about Earl Williams or uh, 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 marry him instead of Bruce. And, uh, and that brings us to the series of complications and layered dialogue that makes uh, his gal Friday a must-see motion picture. So this is a movie about a whole bunch of really awful people. Yeah, yes. every, everyone in this mm-hmm. movie is pretty awful. That includes the um, the cadre of uh, reporters at the courthouse who kind of act as a um, as a Greek chorus. Yes, and playing they, cards. They, they are just <laughs> terrible people who um, uh, joke about Earl Williams getting hung and and drive Earl Williams' uh, uh, pseudo girlfriend to leap from a window. Yes, and, uh, steal each other's stories without a whisper of guilt look up staircases up women's skirts although one of my favorite exchanges is when the one guy is uh reading the straight story into the phone uh to his paper and the other guy is listening and reading a totally different version of the story to his paper (laughs) uh this happens several times during the picture and and it's funnier each time i love all of the telephone choreography in this and and in a good Mm -hmm. like the stage version is literally only in that room that's the set for the show. The movie is like seventy percent in that room, so it's they they didn't make much many changes to, and just all of that is so beautifully staged. And I mean, I, you know, I love like when the one guy is like, "Hang on," goes to the next phone, he's not here, and just hangs up the phone because it's someone else's phone. Right, um, little things like that. It's just delightful. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. This the scene that I like the best that they were all <laughs> reporting different things is towards the end, and you've got you got one the first guy saying, you know, he was found on he was unconscious when they found him, and then you know, pan over to the next guy captured after a valiant struggle, offered no resistance, like just one after the other after the other. <laughs> and they're all completely different. Let's talk about the relationship between Walter Burns and Hildy Johnson because I think that's interesting. <laughs> it's really sick. It's it's he, horrifying. He will do anything to create impediments to her going <laughs> on that train to Albany or perhaps the later train to Albany. He 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 sets uh, uh, Bruce, the boring insurance salesman, up to be arrested three um, times during multiple yep. times. Yeah. Mashing. He he is he is causing lots of trouble. Um, he, his his reasons for wanting to keep her are uh, paper thin at best, but he keeps on going with them. The line that I wrote down that I thought was funny is, "I need you to cover this." There's nobody on the paper who can write, which I thought <laughs> you're employing a lot of people at that paper, and none of them can write. But that's okay. He really just wants her to stay. You've been an editor. You've never felt like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's probably you got to give it a better reason than that. Like people can write, but they can write different things. Like uh, like he's like, you, t- tell him to take a vacation. Like she knows he can write. So he needs to go on vacation so that that I can have you do this story. So I, I was I was amused by that. And the fact that he just is shameless. He doesn't care. He's going to do whatever he can to prevent her from leaving. And when she catches him lying, which she does several times, he just laughs because he has, <laughs> as you say, no shame. Yeah. When she realizes Sweeney got married four months ago and this is 1940. So he couldn't have be, be having a baby already. Yep. Just you got me. And I love that scene in particular because it shows that Walter and Hildy are at the same level. Yes. There's a bunch of Looney Tunes cartoons 
where Bugs and Daffy are fighting over Elmer. And Elmer isn't really a character. He's just a stooge. Or right. Elmer's Bugs says, go do that. And Daffy the says, original do that. Ralph Bellamy role. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and that's what the dinner scene really reminds me of, mm. where you've got two Sharpies. Yeah. And then <laughs> Ralph going, so he huh? didn't have twins? And particularly right after that, <laughs> the contempt in Cary Grant's face when he's oh. like, do you really not know what's going on here? <laughs> oh, you chump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are They are all pretty awful people. But <laughs> the thing that I kind of appreciate, I mean, besides the fact that, that the two of them are really, are communicating on their own level, you know, in a way they, they sort of belong together for, for that reason. But I like that relationship-wise, Walter only ever tries to persuade her and bamboozle her. He never, you know, he he knows her well enough to know that sort of forcing her in any way or doing anything directly isn't going to work. Bruce, the Ralph Bellamy, he doesn't know that. So he, by the end, you know, he tries to, to make her leave with him. And then when she won't, he gets upset and basically insults her. And yeah, she's she's a terrible person for the way that she has treated him. But she's operating on a completely different level. And, and I like that that the Cary Grant's character is is operating on the same level as her and is not getting all all up in her face and trying to make her do something that she doesn't want to do. He's just trying to convince her via ways that are reprehensible, but that he knows are going to work because he knows she's reprehensible too. Yeah, and and I wonder how much of that comes from uh, originating as a story about two men without any romantic involvement. Whereas, you know, if this had been crafted from the beginning as a romantic screwball comedy, maybe that would have been different. Well, that's what's cool about it. I think in the the, the scene where she enters initially into the room, uh, I guess it's the press room at the courthouse, and there's banter going back and forth. And it's very much like she's one of the guys, right? I mm-hmm. mean, they're just mm-hmm. – they're shooting insults right. back and forth. Right. And it's – I'm not sure how much of that is just because it was originally written for a man, but it's great because it's like, oh, well, she's accepted as one of the awful reporters here because <laughs> she's just as terrible as they are. But it's it's cool. I think that's, that's I think, my favorite bit where, you know, I, I love seeing Hildy, you know, just she's this respected uh, sort of force of nature. Um it's just it's very cool. It's very unusual to see in, in a movie of this vintage. Yeah. And, and a lot of that is straight from the play. You could sort of make the argument that there are some of the the um, uh, Catherine Hepburn screwball comedies, um, bringing up Baby, which is mm-hmm. another Howard Hawks. That's picture. another Howard Hawks. Yep. Yeah, um, where where she she's sort of she she's just as sharp as everyone else, but I, th- this one goes the full the full nine ten yards with with just making her every much an agent of her own uh, <laughs> right. malevolence. Along with everyone else. Yeah, she bribes cops. She threatens people with the power of the press. Right. She plants ideas in guys' heads so they don't get executed. Mm -hmm. Well, she runs the guy down and tackles him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is spectacular. (laughs) That's the best. The big difference between this and bringing a baby and Catherine Hepburn in that is that she's also a very competent person. She knows what she's doing and she's good at it. Whereas Catherine Hepburn in bringing a baby is just kind of an incompetent ditz who happens to get into trouble and happens to save the day. And I would you know. say Cary Grant is an incompetent ditz in that movie as well. Yeah, he's like I, the ingenue. Which is why I do not like it as much as His Girl Friday, which I will just briefly say is my favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and I actually like the idea that in addition to treating Hildy as she's just she's just one of the newspaper men because that's what she is, they don't rub our noses in the fact that she's doing something different from most women in the world. It's just sort of a fact of life. I mean, they could treat her nicely and also have a couple of scenes in there making it really clear, oh, look at this. We've got a lady who's doing something different. They never give us any of that. And I love the fact it's it's refreshing that she's trying to escape this non-feminine lifestyle and give it a try being being a, a woman going home and raising kids and stuff like that and they don't shame her for that in any kind of overt way they they just sort of tease her about it in a in a good-natured joshing kind of a way like oh you know i give it six months you'll get bored at home which is the same kind of teasing they would give a man who decided to you know retire to the country if he was a newspaper man who was going to get bored retiring to the country so it was and i i do suspect that a lot of it is because the character was transitioned from male to female and they didn't add a bunch of that in but they could have added a bunch of that crap in and they didn't so it's just it's so nice to be watching it from this time in 2016 and recognizing that the majority of the movies made in 2016 don't treat women as well as Rosalind huh. Russell gets treated in his Girl Friday. Yeah, if anything, the other newsmen seem jealous about the fact that they can't, they don't have that out. You know? yeah. yeah, they would love to be able to get married and get the hell out of there, but uh, it's not an option for them. Yeah, although I never, I never believe that she. The, the whole idea, like, well, I'm going to uh, – you're a newspaper man. I want to go somewhere where I can be a woman, she says. And, and she's going to go to the be, be, this more, marry this boring guy uh, and go to Albany. I never believe for a second that, that this is something that she would legitimately want to do. And I realize this is a zany comedy and all that. But there is no way that somebody as sharp as this woman is would – first off, and as good at her job, would abandon it. But certainly would abandon it to go to Albany with this drip. It I, that part of it i'm just like come on how how is this even how do we get to this point i will tell you as as a woman i will tell you how that's possible she just got back from like four weeks in bermuda she was relaxing she was in a completely different place mentally she probably got wined and dined and was able to just relax and decompress with this guy for a while so so yeah she's thinking this is wonderful this is what i want to do i mean as soon as she's back in the real world for like a week i'm sure she would change her mind but i do believe that this character at that point at the beginning of it has, has made the decision that yes this is something she wants to try um it just wouldn't last plus, plus if you if you if you recall from the the opening scenes of the movie she chides walter for not opening a door for her which he will do one time and then the very next door that he has to open for whoop, it just he he just leaves her behind and yeah. walks through deliberately very <laughs> <Yeah>. deliberately <laughs> very deliberately so i think it's important that she she had those weeks in Bermuda right after her divorce. She spent yep. the whole time fuming about this impossible idiot she was married to. <laughs> I'm not going back there. I'm never going back there. Albany sounds great. Yeah, Ralph Bellamy is is rebound man. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. He is the classic rebound guy. He's calm. He's mellow. He's responsible. Yep. He's well. He's one of the two classic classic rebound guy types. It's either it's either the the, the too nice guy who's boring or the super jerk. And she yeah. was she was married to the super jerk, so that's what the rebound guy has to be. One of the biggest changes that I see between this version and the original front page, I mean, apart obviously from the sex change of Hildy, is how Walter is almost as different as Hildy is in this. In the in the regular front page, Walter is absolutely reprehensible. He has he's not charming. He is. He's no, he's an, an a-hole. Off, he's a tyrant. He's just yeah. an awful person, and Cary Grant's an awful person. 
but my God, he's amazingly charming. I mean, <laughs> how can you not love him? Still Cary Grant. I mean. Yeah, it's it's hard to make Cary Grant not lovable. <laughs> well, my, my yes, wife, exactly. my wife and I have a theory. We call it the Brad Pitt conundrum. And it's the um, it's the problem that of the handsome man who is very good at comedy, but they but because he's so handsome, they keep making him do handsome man roles. And the John Hams John Ham suffers from this. There, there's a few other people, but I think C- Cary Grant is the original um, uh, Brad Pitt in this sense, in that he, he get, got cast in all these movies and he's he's fine in them. But the the really great stuff that he does is 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 this movie and uh, North by Northwest, which in, in essence he's he's doing a comic role there too. Oh, it's a comedy, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And you, you you just watch his stuff. The the phone scene where he's remaking the front page. And it's just him screaming at <laughs> Duffy, who is off screen the entire time. <laughs> Never mind the European war. So to break ranks a little bit, I, I have to admit that I do find Walter so reprehensible that I don't find him that charming. I find the oh. charmingness kind of cloying and disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I find Cary Grant's timing and delivery perfect, and he's wonderful in this role, the character is just too awful for me. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that's probably yeah. my single my, – my biggest – complaint with this movie is the comedy here is great and it's madcap and it's hilarious and it would work so much better if there was somebody here I could hang on to as somebody I didn't want dead. (laughs) Earl Williams. (laughs) Earl Earl Williams, the murderer of a black cop, is the most likable character in the film. Um, uh, there, There are four Cary Grant films from this period that I love. I just absolutely love them, but to varying degrees. And I have to say, of the four, I might like this one the least, mainly because it is it is that reprehensibleness. It's I you know I can't quite get past that. Whereas mm-hmm. you know, in bringing a baby, he's a ditz, but he's a sweet guy, and he's a total innocent. Or in Topper, he's not exactly an innocent, but he's not <laughs> he's not quite dissolute right. to this point. I mean, all of his charm here is in the service of getting his way. Exactly. None of it's just charm. It's all that's tyrancy. Of the two flaws I find in it, this is that's one of them. And the other is that as much as I love the fact that they've done the gender swap and they've thrown in this whole subplot, it does feel like two different movies at, at times. It's like, well, we're going to have this and we've taken away the, the sort of serious subplot going on in the front page. And the serious part was kind of good. That was kind of the sharp satire of it. But, you know, it's a great variation. I love it. You know, it's still one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I would say for that era, um, I, something more like The Awful Truth would probably be my favorite. Because oh, that yeah. also has Ralph Bellamy as the other guy <laughs> in it as well. And Irene and he's, Dunn. Yeah, and he's not so he's not so uh, so reprehensible in that one. And he's yes, he's trying to undermine, you know, his wife and Ralph Bellamy. But it's it's more charming. It's more cute. See, I prefer the smart, conniving Cary Grant. This one and the Philadelphia story, he knows what mm-hmm. he's doing. And oh, I like yeah. that a lot more than the manic Cary Grant you get in um, Arsenic and Old Lace. Bringing a Baby or Arsenic and yeah, Old Lace, my where favorite, my favorite wife. Settle down. I do, I do love my favorite wife. Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. Yeah. Although Holiday may be my favorite. Getting back to you talking about the sort of serious side to this, the satire side, I think my favorite scene in the movie is probably – uh, just after they've badgered poor Molly Malloy <laughs> into tears and Hildy leads her out of the room. And uh, and there's just a, about yeah. maybe 20 seconds of silence where all of the reporters just feel mm-hmm. absolutely awful for what they've done. And they know they're reprehensible people and they just they look like they want to die. And their uh, their poker game is clearly ruined. And it's just it's a wonderful, dramatic moment in the middle of this this comic 
uh, wackiness. Mm-hmm. But it does, you're right, it sort of sticks out like a sore thumb for all that. Yeah, we haven't really talked about it, but that's the one moment people aren't talking a hundred miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Just suddenly yeah. the movie stops. There's a moment of human emotion. There's some breathing. And then it it's back to going crazy. Yeah. Right. yeah, and it's so much more powerful because of that. It's It stands out very starkly. I mean, it's, after she yells, it's a wonder a bolt of lightning don't come down and strike you all dead. And then, you know, she's out of the room and then, whoa, I love yeah. it. The gentleman of the press. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're one to talk, Hildy. <laughs> I like the, um, in terms of the reality of being in the news media, I, I think the story about the uh, the fact that in their previous marriage and also in the uh, at the very end when they're talking about going to Niagara Falls and there's that moment of like, well, but along the way there's a story. Um, that that's not that far off from the life of somebody in the <laughs> oh, news no. media, right? I mean, <laughs> no, that that really rang true to me. Like, but on the way, we have to do this other thing because that's the, the, you you end up going to where the news is, and so that that um, as ridiculous as this story is in so many ways, I, I saw that and I was like, yeah, actually, that's about right. Yeah. Oh, but it's so depressing there, where Hildy just resignedly says, "Okay, well, honeymoon in Albany." It's like this force of nature <laughs> yeah. has once again been tamed by this scumbag. Maybe Bruce sort of can put us up. Under his spell again. <laughs> yeah, with Mama, they 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 uh, they'll get to Niagara Falls. They're yeah. just going to have to stop off and file a story. They're oh, not going to do a lot of reporting in Albany. They're never making it to Niagara Falls, no, they'll Jason. Get there. They'll get no. there. There might be a tragedy there. They do like each other, though. There's a great scene where she's gotten the story of where the gun came from, and even though they're talking to each other on the phone. The way it's shot, they're both leaning into the phone saying, oh, I got a pip, Walter. You're going to love this. Yeah, yeah, go on. And I think the characters really do genuinely love each other. Do they love each other? Or do they love their job? Because I'm, I'm not certain that's so much affection for each other as they love to be journalists, you know. And they love to dig dirt and they love to have a scoop. Well, and they're good at doing those things together. So, I mean, whether that whether that parlays itself into actual love or it's just simply the fact that they work so well together as a team professionally, uh, which, yeah. I mean, considering the way the movie starts and ends, I think that's probably the case. They are great together. They're dynamite as a couple on, on the paper. But, you know, at home, she kind of wanted to be coddled a little bit more and that never, ever happened. So I think she's, yeah. But they enjoy each other's company so much. Like in that dinner scene at the beginning, there's a moment where where he lights his cigarette off her match, smirks at her about how cute he's being, and she kind of gives him a look like, yeah, all right, you got that. Yeah, she thinks his jerkiness is hilarious, it's clear. (laughs) She's right! (laughs) Maybe I just feel uh, Bellamy's pain too much Uh... as the other guy, but... (laughs) Oh, you got a little of that Bellamy pain, huh? Yeah, of you course. Know, sap, speaking yeah. of Bellamy, it's I fatal. think the funniest line in the whole movie is... I shot right is... in the classified ads. <laughs> no the ads. Line in the whole movie is how he says, insurance is a good, honest business. I was like, wow, times have changed. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to say, I'd like to talk about a couple of the, the supporting characters here. The Yay. Yes. Three stand out, uh, starting with Gene Lockhart. Um, old, old movie club standby, Gene Lockhart. Yeah, the judge. As the judge in uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Here yep. he's Peter B. Hartwell, B for brains. <laughs> There's a lot of Miracle on 34th Street actors in this movie. Yes, there are. There are. Um, and uh, he he's just fantastic as just this uh, the, the the hapless sheriff, and he is he is outstanding. <laughs> Speaking of a stooge who's getting bullied around by two sharpies. <laughs> yeah, except he's getting bullied around by everyone. 
How did he get to be sheriff? He was down ticket. Because the, the political machine uh, got him in there. I guess. One, th- one thing I love about him is there's the scenes where Walter and Hildy bully someone. But then there's this scene where the mayor and the sheriff try to bully somebody else. And even though it's the softest, dumbest guy in the world. And that, would be, about to that mention, would be another great guy. Uh, <laughs> Billy Gilbert is the name of that actor. Yeah. as Pettibone. The voice of Sneezy. Yes. Oh, yes. Ah, there you go. I knew I knew that voice from somewhere. Wow. Jiminy Cricket's is... also in this movie. <laughs> and he is fantastic, particularly when he's drunk. Yeah. I, yeah. I watched this versus the um uh, the 1931 version the of the front page, and um where where uh, Pettibone comes in, he's a different character in that movie. I think his name is Pincus, but he comes in and is does the drunk routine and it's 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 not as well timed as it is here and a lot of that is really uh billy gilbert's reaction like when he tries to show the mayor a picture of his wife and uh he says she's a very handsome woman oh she's, oh, she's good, good enough, enough, for, enough me. for me i i that is so that puts <laughs> me on the floor each time there's a moment where they where they're trying to bribe him they say all you've got to do is lie low and keep your mouth shut he immediately says well, I'm tired anyway. <laughs> Great answer. Yes. Finally, the life preserver I needed is a decent guy who isn't able to be bullied or uh, or bribed into doing something hor- horrible. Well, here's a decent guy who is bullied and bribed into doing horrible things. John Quaylen plays Earl Williams, and he is magnificent. <laughs> uh, he's <laughs> such a sad little man, and and he's been in a old movie club movie too. He was um the deputy the sheriff jailer. in uh, Anatomy of a Murder. He played a lot of Swedes in a lot of John Ford movies. <laughs> what? Yeah, no, and he's Burger, yeah. and he's Burger in Casablanca, the guy who tries yep. to. Uh, oh uh, my god! Contact with uh, Victor Laszlo. Well, he was doing a Swedish accent in Anatomy of a Murder, right? Yeah, yeah, because it's it, it's a hey, buckles. That's that's him in Anatomy of a Murder. Huh. Yeah, he's the, the guy whose wife makes bad food. My favorite supporting role is the blonde. Just because of the moment where Ralph Bellamy is calling Hildy to say he got arrested for mashing. They, they call it mashing. <laughs> he, he says, yes, she's blonde, and looks over at her, and she nods. She nods. Like, yep. that's right, I'm blonde. I'm blonde. <laughs> Very blonde. She ain't no she's albino. albino. She was born right here in this country. <laughs> <laughs> she does a lot with her two minutes of screen time. Yeah. My my favorite favorite bit of the side characters is the sort of little side joke that the sheriff has hired a bunch of his family and his landlord and stuff to try to quote unquote keep the order after the uh, hanging because you know the red menace is, is such a such a big deal and they are such bumbling in, bumbling incompetence that like a tear bomb goes off in their midst and they have to be hospitalized and like you get that in in two separate pieces because in the in the beginning of the movie you sort of hear about that in the background about the sheriff hiring all of his friends and family and then later on you get the news story about about that everybody that got hurt and had to go to the hospital was related to him is it one of his relatives that shoots the scrub lady <laughs> oh yes all of his relatives shoot the scrub lady <laughs> there goes another scrub lady <laughs> they say with glee so when hildy's interviewing earl williams is she genuinely trying to get a story or is she just buffaloing him into a story she can use I think she's trying for a story, but realizes pretty quick that this guy's got nothing. So then she's like, okay, plan B, Buffalo. All right. I think she's doing the journalism practice at the time, which is you kind of wrote the lead on the way to the ballpark. <laughs> yeah. She just, she plants that idea right in his head and he's going to go with it from there on out. He's a very easily led fellow. I'm not sure that she know that there's a difference to her. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the point is that it's the same. If it makes a good story, then it's right. 
And, and it's true. And that's, that's okay the... because these folks bear no resemblance to the men and women of the press today. Uh, yes. I was just going to say that, yeah. <laughs> Such a sarcastic opening screen. <laughs> <laughs> just getting you ready. Just getting you ready. Even though they have, a, they have an FDR joke in there, though. They have lots of jokes. They mention the European War. Yeah. They mention the uh, rooster. No, that's a human interest story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep that in there. Story. He's right. I'm I'm interested in it. <laughs> I want to know about that rooster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's weird. There's a lot of ad libbing, but there's it's also a really rigorously timed movie. Like yes. the newspaper men can't be ad libbing because they have to be hitting their lines staccato. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's mostly I think between Russell and and Grant. Allegedly, yeah. Roz Russell um, uh, came on set and didn't really get along with Howard Hawks and sort of felt overmatched. So she uh, hired her own writer, in essence, to kind of punch up her dialogue. Yeah, supposedly Cary Grant came on set every day and said, uh, so what do you got today? (laughs) There are a couple (laughs) lines where that stands out. The one I'm convinced she ad-libbed, because they cut right after it, is when Cary Grant says, I'm as good as I ever was. She just kind of mumbles, well, there's never anything to brag about. (laughs) They cut and then go back to a slightly different angle, and Cary Grant is still laughing. Yes. (laughs) And um, the Ralph Bellamy joke that Cary Grant makes was an ad. Oh, yeah. Very clearly. That and the Archie Leach line. Archie Leach. The, yeah, the last guy who crossed him was Archie Leach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a, that was a good was, that, of course, Cary Grant. Grant. I had to back that one up. say that, that in the good. movie. It's baffling. <laughs> who let them make this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's very meta. What were they thinking? Well, there's the condom joke. Yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I'm surprised that the Hayes office let them get away with things like, well, we could have gone to jail for that, too, you know. They might not have noticed. Mm -hmm. You you see some of that stuff, though, in movies of that time. But I do think the rubber joke, I think that went right over the heads of the (laughs) Hayes office. They they didn't understand that at all. Uh, It was was just a little bit too early. Like, that's a joke they could not have gotten away with after the war. I think it might have gone over my head. Which joke are we talking about here? He's uh, it's it's in one of my favorite scenes where um, Cary Grant and Roz Russell have gone out of Cary Grant's office. They're going back into the waiting room and he uh, he starts talking to the old man as if he's Bruce. Right. And then, you know, and then basically insults him, you know, stay out of my business. Uh, I'll, I'll thank you to, you know, keep your nose out of my affairs after he's harassed the guy for a while. But then uh, he shakes he shakes Ralph Bellamy's umbrella instead of his hand first, and then then shakes his hand, and there's some awkwardness between the two of them. And uh, you know, do you all, do you always carry an umbrella? Well, it was it looked, it looked like it was going to rain today. today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, and and do you have rubbers too? And one of my favorite things <laughs> is there's no answer to that. It's I don't know whether this is Bellamy doing this. It's written this way, or it's staged by Hawks. But the answer is just Ralph Bellamy lifting his foot and kind of looking down uh, as his answer to that, which is spectacular. <laughs> and, uh, and then Cary Grant's, well, yeah, it's, it's good that you're always prepared. And it's, <laughs> it, it works as a, it works as a joke at the, at the level that the censors obviously thought it was that he's this dull guy who wears overshoes all the time whenever he thinks it's raining. But then it also works as a snide comment by Walter to this guy that Hildy obviously knows about, but that but that Bruce doesn't. It's 
it's a it's a great scene and it works it the jokes are stacked on top of one another in that yeah. scene i love that yeah. one that's walter at full power a moment ago yeah. he was depressed he's like okay well i guess you're gonna leave but then as soon as hildy says oh ralph's right outside walter snaps <laughs> right back into oh he's right outside <laughs> is he well let's get this going yeah well, i assume that depression was an act too i'm not sure it was yeah, no, know. there are, there are some moments you get a glimpse at um, the real Walter Birds for a for a brief moment. Yeah, Just but he seems moment. to be able to snap so quickly back and forth between the two. I assume. Well, because he's a sociopath. Exactly. <laughs> so why would that. you assume that he's being truthful when he's acting like he's yeah. down and depressed? Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I will say this: yeah. I have a long list of notes from this movie. It's all just jokes I like, and <laughs> <laughs> it's like two thirds of the movie. Yeah. He may so, be awful, but he comes by it naturally. His grandfather was a snake. I still claim I was tight when I proposed to you. I would like to submit the entire script. <laughs> yeah, so I naturally assumed that Rubber's thing was a condom joke, but then I figured they they probably aren't doing a condom joke there. That's probably on the level. So. <laughs> nope. Like, no, well, no. What I love about it. watching this right. movie each time is that I always pick up more of the dialogue um, that's just thrown in there as, as, as background noise. Cause there, there's this moment where Hildy is walking through the newsroom after being away in, in Bermuda and some, and one of the other reporters says to her, my cat just had kittens again. <laughs> well, and Hildy just says fault. without breaking stride, well, it's your own fault. <laughs> it's her own fault. Oh, her own fault. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing I love about a lot of Hawks films is the crosstalk. I mean, people talk about that with like Robert Altman, but I mean, this is where you see it really starting and there are just wonderful throwaway things that just pass back and forth in the background and underneath each other. And my first note is what are these actors being paid by the word? Slow down. Yes, they are. Because <laughs> it's 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 almost too rapid fire. I feel like, you know, the crosstalk is great, but I feel like. I don't know. I, I don't really like having to go back every 20 minutes or every 20 seconds to, to check and see what was said in the – maybe it's just the completest in me. But uh, the, the nice thing about it is that the important uh, details filter out. The things you need to hear, you will hear. There's other stuff there too for when you watch it. I mean they had they had – they didn't have any way of doing this very technically. So they actually had sound guys – turning the microphones up and down all over the stage in every scene so that it's like, we'd make sure you'll hear this and you won't hear them talking in the background, but you'll see them talking. You'll wonder what they're saying because it's probably just as funny. And I think part of the reason the crosstalk works in this movie is because of it's it's almost the exact opposite of what television became uh, in the 50s and 60s. Television was a completely disposable medium. People were expected to watch something once and then they literally threw it away or taped over it. Whereas with movies, people were <laughs> often expected to go to the movies again and again and, and maybe see the same picture again and again. Because if you live in a right. small town in the Midwest, you have one movie theater. It's showing one movie for a week or two or more. And people would go again and again. So a Howard Hawks movie like this, where there's so many layers of dialogue, actually, you know, brought in extra repeat viewing because people would want to go back and catch the things that they missed the first or second or third or fourth time. That's right. Yeah, I do think you have to you have to watch this movie. You have to let it flow over you and, mm-hmm. and don't keep going back. To, to me, anyway, the right way to watch this is is to just let it all because that's where all the timing comes from. That's that's you get swept along with it just like just like the characters in the movie are and you know you pick up the other things you know the fifth or sixth time you watch it well i did eventually resist (laughs) the urge and stop doing that which i which i was doing for maybe the first 10 minutes or so but i was worried the whole time that i was i was missing key elements 
as as that was going on, and it kind of it kind of niggled at me the whole time I was watching the movie. But I did eventually get over it. It's why my wife can't stand watching Mystery Science Theater because she actually wants to pay attention to the story. I'm like, no, that's not. The oh, point. no. Oh, <laughs> no, that's rookie mistake. Yeah. There's another Howard Hawks movie called Ceiling Zero from four years earlier in 1936. Mm-hmm. It stars James Cagney. And when you let Cagney loose on this, he is going <laughs> so much faster than the people in this movie. There's less crosstalk, but I can't follow that movie at all. No, he. it's a mile a minute. It's like the Federal Express ads from the 80s. Mm. Like, that guy's got that's energy. <laughs> well, ultimately, that's why it's good that there's not a whole heck of a lot of plot here, because eventually I settled down and realized, well, I'm not missing anything because <laughs> there's not really anything going on here except people walking back and forth, taking shots at each other. So yeah, it's all right. good. Yeah, I mean, it has the barest uh, bones of the original play's plot, which is it's it's a little more pointed, a little more... Uh, satirical because it's it's not about just the red menace it's about uh the 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 guy has shot a black policeman and the mayor and the sheriff want to make sure he hangs so that they can get the the, all the black votes in town because that'll put them over the top and that's just gone in most of the movie versions it's mentioned in passing here, but yeah, it is. They don't, yeah. It is. Yeah. They don't really focus on it, which a is probably vote. good because then Hildy comes in and and plants the idea in his head to get him saved. One of the uncomfortable parts of the movie, actually. All right, so let's uh, Phil, let's move ahead eleven years. Yes, let's to the to thing movie. from another world. So um, th- this movie is, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, but he's no longer with us, so he's not going to write an angry email. Christian and uh, Nyby. 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 Yeah. Christian Nyby directed this movie like Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. So th- there you go. Anyhow, he was a very accomplished editor, and he did become a very accomplished uh, TV director, Christian mm-hmm. Nyby. Um, I think this was his first feature. And yes. it was for um, Howard Hawks' very own production company. Um, many people believe that Howard Hawks did it. Several of the actors who appear in the movie <laughs> have so much as said. Yes, Howard Hawks directed this movie. There are um, uh, three competing theories here. Um, either that, uh, no, Christian Niebe did direct it and Howard Hawks was just a very hands-on producer. And how can you work <laughs> with how can you work with Howard Hawks all those years and not learn a trick or two from Howard Hawks? Um, theory number two is Howard Hawks totally directed the whole thing, was kind of embarrassed to be directing sci-fi, which at the time was not very, a very well-regarded genre. Um, and, and hey, put your name on this movie, friend. And, and it also, I think, got, um, Christian Nyby into the Directors Guild by being on this movie. So that's theory number two. And theory number three is that first-time director... Kind of in over his head, Howard Hawks stepped in and, and sort of landed the plane, as it were. So, But uh, clearly, if he didn't direct the movie, Howard Hawks' influence is felt from the, the overlapping dialogue, from the, the, the pacing and plot, um, uh, to the fact that just the, the way the characters interact is just it's, – it's basically his Gal Friday in, 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 in the Arctic. In the poker ways. scene – Sounds just like the poker scene in his Girl Friday, right? Yep. Although he didn't he learn at kind of sort of at the feet of Howard Hawks. I mean, wasn't oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was a longtime collaborator, and you know, he he worshipped Hawks, and it was like that was his idol as a director. So of course he's going to have learned some tricks and tried. And to I think there were contemporary like interviews as well where he said effectively that you know, sure, I'm going to take advice from the master. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's like that. 
If he's on the set, ask him a question. Whoever directed the movie, it's a very enjoyable movie, I think. Um, yes. As you may well know, Jason, I'm not a big fan of uh, uh, silly sci-fi for the kids. Yes, I am aware of that. <laughs> or, or, or horror, and this is a, this is a horror um, genre as well the story the story here is that is that uh john w campbell's uh short story who goes there was adapted into this it was later adapted into the thing uh by john carpenter and the remake of that that was recently uh re- released it's adapted here um with a much more liberty taken to the story the the story that yeah. we may know from the carpenter where it's a shape-changing alien that they they don't know who is the alien is actually much more of what was in the original 1938 story by John Campbell than this where it's been simplified to where he's basically a a, a Frankenstein yeah <laughs> a, a radioactive Fra- carrot yeah. A radioactive yeah, but vegetable it, Frankenstein. Yeah, except you look at him and he's a Frankenstein. That's what he is. Oh, yeah. He's a Frankenstein. Yeah. He's just a big monster that goes, and that and that's it. For a radioactive yeah. carrot, he looks very humanoid. He does. The one time he moves <laughs> at all quickly, it, well, two times. One time when he jumps out a window and the other time when somebody throws a crowbar at him and he has to hop <laughs> sideways. Yes, because that's how they he's get him onto spry. the right platform. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's yeah, pretty he good balance. Crowbar? Unsung hero. Mm-hmm. And I and I will say, having seen the John Carpenter movie, I do th- – this is one of the rare movies where the remake works for me just as well as the original. Or I, I, I find both movies enjoyable in their own right. Yeah, this one – this one is – I prefer this one because this is more my style, but – Yes. I do like I do like the John Carpenter version. It's very much like uh His Girl Friday, you're right, in in a lot of ways because you got the dialogue, you got a you got a newsman here who's doing his thing. It's amazing the access that the press has to the to, to, <laughs> it's, it's like so His well. Girl Friday in that it's 99% yapping. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> that true. Too. The newsman goes so, everywhere, which is kind of I, I don't understand that, but he's like, embedded, they, Jason. He's embedded. And not just going sure. anywhere. They take a lot of guff from him, too. He's there to be sarcastic because the military guys can't. They're too regimented, and the scientists are above it. So he's there to be the sarcastic voice of reason and irritation. He's there to show that there's somebody in the world that doesn't have a square jaw. In the climactic scene, though, they do give him a cleaver to go against the, the monster <laughs> along with everybody else with axes, which is a funny... Well, what do you chop vegetables moment. with, Jason? That's right. Yeah, oh, Jason, yeah. that's right. Mm. Not really a cleaver. Not I guess. a cleaver. No, a I would use a, a larger knife. But anyway. So I should probably re- re- recount the plot just a little bit. <laughs> so there's I a lot of yapping. Such there's a yapping. thing. A lot of yapping. one world. <laughs> there's a crowbar. There's a plane that lands on skis. That's really cool. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> it's not easy to land those things with six oh, guys yeah. in the cockpit like that. Sled dogs who aren't bothered by explosions. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's a mad scientist at the North Pole who is studying something perhaps vegetables uh then an unusual uh an unusual aircraft is sighted uh and they go they our friends who are in the army uh in anchorage are flown up to the uh the the mad scientist location and then they go and try to find where the crash site is and there's the site of what might be a meteor or something like that it's melted and refrozen the ice and story uh, checks out so far yeah a very exciting uh scene i was really impressed by some of the snow uh shots in this movie we actually see a plane land on the snow and they get out and they they go to the over to the melted area and there's a, a kind of an eerie scene where they all are supposed to they see that there's a craft down in the ice and they uh and they all kind of 
trace it out to see what what size and shape it is and it's perfectly round and like it's a flying saucer which i actually really liked that scene oh um, i love that i scene. do too but but that scene is the where i took the the single note that i took on this film i had never seen it before so i decided i was going to sit back and actually watch it and enjoy the film and not take notes on it but the one thing i had to write down was like i grew up in wisconsin i live in canada you cannot see through ice like that you can't see details well, well the idea what they said was that it melted and refroze and that's why it was clear is that it was like this, an ice like, cube? It was like flash. Yeah, but by come that on, time, come it on, had been Storming and winding over the top yeah. of it. They were walking around. They were scuffing it up. It, there's no. It's space there's no way they could have. It was space. Also, if it helps, it was filmed in the San Fernando Valley, <laughs> but apparently it was 90 degree heat. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so here is the thing that then happens that is that shows you that the army doesn't know what it's doing. They want to figure out how to get the al- crashed alien spaceship out of the ice. So what do they do? They stick thermite on it and blow it up. <laughs> Jason, okay. it's standard operating procedure. Yeah. Absolutely. Jason, this is America. <laughs> I know. Well, it's the North Pole. But anyway, uh, but, but, but they do find that there's a body in the ice, uh, at which point one of the army guys suggests that they also blow it up. But instead, they use axes to chop it out and uh, put it on a dog sled and take it back to the base. Isn't it the newsman who has just gotten through berating them horribly for oh, blowing yeah. up he, the spaceship who says, them, you should use some thermite? Business. Yeah. Yeah, he could oh, spend hilarious. more time taking notes and less time complaining about how they do things. Yeah. It's all up there. It's all up in his head, man. Wow. He's a professional mm-hmm. newsman. He picks up an axe and pitches in, though. Give him credit. Well, of Cleaver, or Cleaver, yeah. Um, so anyway, they take it back to the base uh, where a dummy puts an electric blanket on it. <laughs> no, well, I want to... No, no, no. The, the, the... Okay, go ahead, Phil. For, go ahead. Let me... Let me uh, a point of order. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> The the electric blanket is originally there because the one they they've broken a window in this the uh-huh. storehouse that they're storing them in so that the guy doesn't melt and yes. and, and so that they can pre- preserve the ice block and um the electric and then a dummy puts it on the block to, of to ice quivering Lieutenant McPherson uh, yes. warm while he while he sits there complaining having kittens I believe is the phrase yes. that is used but instead um, he's a dummy but then who puts stupid the electric Barnes blanket. comes in and goes oh, yeah it's his I'm replacement that throws I'm it on gonna, there. Yeah, it's, it's stupid Corporal Barnes puts the uh, blanket. He thinks on it's the, just um, a blanket in his on, defense. On the ice block. And, he does not um, know it's an electric a, blanket. Another beautiful shot I love. He puts the blanket on it, and just in case you haven't determined that it's the blanket, it's the very camera, subtle. The it's camera follows that, that cord all the way mm-hmm. and then does the dissolved shot with the dripping. Yep. And so that you and the audience will go, oh no. I am shocked that there weren't little buzzing buzzing arc bolts by the at the at the socket mm-hmm. showing us that, that that it was charged this, this is how you know it was really 90 yeah. <laughs> i uh i neglected to mention that there's also a captain in the army who comes and his girlfriend i guess is the assistant to He's the mad scientist honor. at the pole He's sweet honor. they have He's a like history his girlfriend yeah they had He's, they had one wild night together. They did yeah. one wild night in in Anchorage or wherever. He began yeah. to resemble something of an octopus. <laughs> and there's five minutes of kinky rope play in the middle yeah. of this film, which is a bit odd. We don't see how that evening began, but he's tied to a chair and she's pouring liquor into him. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Again, you guys, this is sounding an awful lot like complaints, and I don't see. I'm. I am not complaining. This is. <laughs> Problem. My only complaint is that we don't see how she got him to do that, considering that he's whining about it. He did it. offer to bring a rope, oh, he and offered she said, it. yes, do that. Monty, I believe it went something like this. How about I tie you up and give you liquor, okay? <laughs> no, don't throw me in that briar patch. 
The safety word is the thing is attacking. <laughs> anyway, the thing, the, the alien melts and he uh, attacks people and he's like a big vegetable and uh, he goes outside. Well, what what and... we learn from the various science stuff is that he is not he's made out of uh, plant matter in that he can re- he can reproduce uh, uh with just with human blood let's let me talk about the science for a minute because we recently watched for rocket surgery a movie called gog and, gog. and many things <laughs> in this movie reminded me of gog in that there are detailed things about how science works that first off are ridiculous in most cases and second are way too detailed for it to be necessary very much like gog so we learn about how their cameras work and how they figure distance through a, through some explanations of exciting <laughs> science in the sound effect la- science lab of Dr. Carrington. At least the character he was explaining that to was like, I didn't get anything that you just said. So I was like, all right, me either. Yeah, he totally ignores it, but we all have to learn yeah. it anyway. I have to step in here. The most important thing about that explanation is that it comes from George Fenneman. Yes. Groucho's sidekick on You Bet Your Life. Yeah, I liked that scene because it reminded me of old science fiction where they're like, we've just invented radar. It's amazing. We're going to have to explain radar for 10 minutes. Yes. And then oh, yeah. people will be amazed. Well, it's just like in GOG. There, there's definitely <laughs> oh, like, so we have some like science and we want to show it to you and explain how the science works. This is a seed pod. It works kind of like a seed pod. Let me tell you about how plants work. Now the alien works like that. But with blood, it uses human blood to grow. Here's how we navigate without a compass. Oh, wait, here's yeah. the explanation for how that uh, crash site is in a bottle shape. Uh. Oh, here's how you properly place thermite bombs. <laughs> No, nope. but it's uh, it's a science procedural that's fun. They were heavy on the science in the science fiction of the day. It is true. I will say it is a dramatic uh, contrast to Gog that a misplaced tool actually saves the day instead of getting a guy killed. So mm-hmm. that's nice. Okay. Yeah, I cannot believe you are comparing the thing to Gog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no robots in this. No robots. I think my biggest problem with the science was simply the. The scientist was deducing all of these things about the motivation of the creature and stating it so matter of fact immediately. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. The one that I wrote down was, "I doubt that it even can die." And I'm like, "You just saw it. How have you decided this?" And then he says, "It's vegetable life. It developed without emotions or sexual factors." I'm like, "Uh, "When did you figure that one out, genius?" Same time he figured out that it's wiser than all of us. It's right. He's basing that entirely on the fact that uh, it views us only as food you know like those paragons of intellect bears and wolves <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh he's a he's a mad scientist to quote kodos and kang from the simpsons did any, anyone who invented a way to travel across galaxies step forward right now so i give it to plant guy yeah. for at least inventing the ship oh the guy with the flammable ship well see plant guy is just very tired it's okay Intelligence, yes. Wisdom, no. Those no. are two very different things. No. And being a scientist, you'd think he would be smart enough to know that, yeah. but it doesn't Yeah, like don't it. land here. We blow up anything we see. Well, there are no real particular signs of intelligence here either. <laughs> he could also have been a prisoner from the last place that the spaceship stopped. So, you know, uh, you don't know. You don't know. But this no, guy knows. The mad scientist knows. And, of course, he, he, th- he loves it and worships it and gets them into trouble. And they have to knock him out because he's going to let it in and <laughs> feed it uh, blood. And I do. I do. There's a, an amusing set of scenes where Anchorage finally gets through to them and says, keep it alive if you can. Try it. You guys stay alive, but keep it alive. And every time one of those orders comes in, the mad scientist is there to go, aha, 
Take <laughs> Told you. <laughs> the army knows what it's doing. Listen to them. I love the mad scientist because, um, first off, they could not make him look more Russian if they actually, um, <laughs> if they actually had him go, you know, as Joe Stalin once said to me at our, at our DACA one day, mm-hmm. uh, but it, I, I just I really enjoy the fact that in this movie, um, the scientists are the baddies and it's the it's the stupid army men that are the, the good guys, because because that is such a contrast to the um, to the um, uh, sci fi narrative that that I grew up with. Yeah, right. But they, they basically they just make it. It's not that he's a mad scientist. He's just really tired. And at the very end. <laughs> There's even a kind of a show of camaraderie where the news band, yeah. instead of saying, yeah, he got uh, injured trying to kill us all, yeah. he says he got injured in a dramatic fight against the thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he had the current yeah. of his convictions, at least. He wasn't hiding. He went up to that thing and tried reasoning with it. It's yeah. true. Everyone always says, try reasoning with it. That's Give a, it a good shot. point. Yeah. So what we're seeing is he's the true hero of the picture. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I don't care that much about the plot, to be honest with you guys. I just like the snappy banter that everybody's doing all of the time, no matter what's yes. happening. Around oh, yeah, there. they're about to die, and they are they are cracking wise. I actually enjoy the plot. I'm, I'm you know, being a, an old-school Doctor Who fan, I'm kind of a sucker for a base under siege story, and this is you know, oh, yeah. kind of the classic prototype of base under siege yeah. story. Oh yeah, uh, Erica, you really need to watch so the remake, sieging. the Carpenter remake. I I do. It's it is it is on my list. It's it's one of those things I've been meaning to see forever and ever, and just haven't gotten around to it. And now having seen this, you know, my my curiosity is is even more peaked than before. So I I will I will watch that. It's a lot yeah, different. Try, from try this. reading the original story first, and then watch yeah. the Carpenter, and see how they compare. It's it's it is kind of interesting. I'll probably do that in the other order, but I will do it. Okay. You don't need the recent one. It's just a worse version. I'm of the not interested one. in the oh, recent yeah. one, no. I will say this, though. This movie has one of the two most terrifying fire scenes I've ever seen. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Where clearly they decided the way we're going to shoot this is just set everything in the room on fire and hope the actors somehow survive. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That scene, I think, is uh, is probably as good a chaotic action scene as I have ever seen in an old movie. And it, it beats a lot yeah. of the recent action scenes I've seen mm-hmm. because the thing comes in the door, they douse it in kerosene, the lights go out, and all of a sudden just every damn thing in that room is on, <laughs> on fire. fire. And there is yeah. just craziness going and on. And then they and chuck no more kerosene on more kerosene. To choreograph it without getting somebody killed because there's people He's running to and fro. on fire with his arm. And the it is actors nuts. are throwing actual buckets of kerosene at it. Which are, <laughs> yep. I mean, and in, uh, supposedly, according to IMDb trivia, so who knows, uh, that, that scene is believed to be the first full-body burn accomplished by a stuntman and that wasn't actually james arness in the suit at that time it was a stuntman so of the 30 seconds he's on screen fully 20 of them is some other guy (laughs) (laughs) i mean and there are a lot of people running around in that flaming room and the fact that somebody isn't horribly injured is kind of amazing Mm -hmm. a second ago they were all worried about safety hey put out that cigarette (laughs) good idea I mean, it, it is utter bedlam, and then they finally knock the creature out the window, and the whole thing is over in like 20 seconds, but it's it's so well done. It's probably the best scene. Yeah, so they've, they, they've basically determined that the way to kill the monster is with heat or fire. Because <laughs> that's what you do to potatoes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yep. What do you do with a vegetable? Just roast Boil it. And of course, it's the woman who comes up with that. Which leads us to our denouement, <laughs> which is the uh, they, they rig the uh, place for electricity to... Um, 
uh, create an arc of light to uh, to destroy the thing. I liked that scene. I, re- I quite like them all working together. You know, they had people stationed in different places. They're talking to each other via the radio. They're using mm-hmm. they're using science that they're not explaining to us quite as much as some of the other science, which is nice. They're just putting oh, yeah. stuff yeah. together. And as they're preparing it, the people are actually on the same wavelength. So a couple mm-hmm. of them are like, oh, you know what we could yeah. do? Yes, I'll get right. I, like I liked that, that team. Right. The teamwork yes. thing right. there was really good. And it has the best line of quippy dialogue in the face of death. I just had a thought. Oh, Lieutenant McPherson had a thought. No, what if this thing can read minds? He's going he's gonna to be really angry when he gets to me. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, I really got... I like all of the banter in the halls as they're sort of waiting yeah. for the yeah. thing to come to them because it, mm-hmm. it feels like the realistic chatter of guys who are on the verge of, yeah. of crapping their pants. That's the <laughs> best. Just... That, is, that is the best thing in this movie is that the, that hallway and yep. the, the guys at the, at the ends who are radioing in and they set it all up and then they're there talking and all that. That is so good. Um, you know, yeah, when the thing finally comes in, I'm like, oh, I kind of like the tension of when they were waiting for him. But now here he is. So I guess we got to do the Frankenstein part. But it, it's 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 a really great moment. You've you've spent the whole movie with these characters and there's been a lot of dialogue and you've got to get to know them. And and, and now they're under pressure in the base under siege. And uh, it's it's uh, it's a great uh crucible for that that all that dialogue is in there and and they all are at the end of their lives potentially and and they may even if they set this thing on uh, or electrocute it or whatever it's like there's also the the freezing cold outside like they they ran the heating is out so they're forced to act because the the oil heating oil has been cut off so you know they may not survive even if they can kill this thing it's a big question mark i all of that is just great It, it really does culminate in that in, in that moment at the end, that's that 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 mm-hmm. hallway. It's just so good. The sta- and the staging in that hallway, I think, also works just from a set perspective because it feels claustrophobic. Yes. This is their last stand. They're really trapped here. You've got a few <laughs> characters in this tiny little electrical yeah. room, and the rest of the, the characters in a claustrophobic hallway. And and not only that, you can see their breath. Like the the the, the heat has gone out, yep. and you know that things are are in trouble because because the actors, yeah, they're really cold. <laughs> And as a Doctor Who fan, you're a connoisseur of people in hallways. That's one of my favorite moments in in the film is where she's the one who keeps going, you know, look, look. And they're like, what? You know, it's your breath. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I'm just, I've been nervous. No, no, no. Look at your (laughs) breath. Yes. Yeah. Where they discover that the heat has been, that the heat has been shut off. The, the, their breath starts appearing and slowly one by one, all of the actors realize, (laughs) oh no. This oh. is not good. Yeah. No. And it just and they count it down as it gets colder and colder in there and it's sixty below outside and they have to act, which is why they have the they have the idea about the electricity and then they put it in motion. And I think that's interesting that they know the monster is out there, but this is a thing where they, they have to get they have to do this now. They can't wait it out. They can't wait for the pe- the to be rescued by somebody. They have to act now or they're all gonna go because otherwise they're gonna go out there and try to unclog the thing and they're gonna get killed one by one by the monster. They don't wanna screw this one up. They already pulled one boner out there on the ice jason yeah they did mm-hmm. yeah. so many boners I, pulled <laughs> as, as soon as i heard that line i mean i've seen this film countless times but i heard the line this time and i went that's steve's favorite line <laughs> yeah it's got four asterisks in my notes no i i just i i love all the dialogue i love the crosstalk and i love the fact that they're they're allowed to be competent people who are comfortable with each other they're kind of teasing each other they're not you know it's not there's not a lot of antagonism there i mean there's tension but you know they all know that there's this mystery they all know that something is going to happen and then later on you know it's like oh well now we've got to save ourselves and 
you know, but there, but it's, it's just, it's an interesting dynamic that I don't think we saw in that kind of story up till then. And we can scoff about the science of it, but I, I, the movie does um, something I think that's clever for a, uh, uh, certainly a horror movie of that era. And I think that influenced future uh, horror movies. And, and that's, is it, you, Bill, you, is it, is it where the guy says this Geiger counter is going crazy and all of the scientists run right up to where it's going crazy? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, Steve, actually, For powers. I, I like the fact that this is a movie that, that realizes you, um, show the monster bit by bit. And I, yes. I it, it's something that Steven Spielberg used effectively in Jaws. And oftentimes you use it effectively because if you show the monster all at once, people will go, that's a really stupid looking monster. And the, the, like in Jaws, the reason that they only showed the shark bit by bit is that the, the shark they were going to use kept breaking. So they could only yeah. show bits and bobs of it. Uh, and, and here, you know, you, you show, uh, an arm of the monster and a brief glimpse of the monster and, and you save it for the end so that the, the, the reveal actually is, is a, a, a little bit spooky. And extremely disappointing because it turns out it's just a guy. Yeah, it's just James Ernest. <laughs> it's just a big guy <laughs> who got the who got the role because he's really tall for actors in 1951. Yeah, it, it is a letdown when you see him because he is just kind of a like I said, he's just a Frankenstein. Uh, mm -hmm. and he's gonna, he kind of does his thing and, and they electrocute Actually, him and that's great. And the one actor who has no lines in this movie goes on probably to have the greatest career of anyone involved in the thing. He yep. reportedly was not, uh, was rather embarrassed by the fact that he did this movie uh -huh. and didn't like the costume. He thought it made him look like a giant carrot. And mm. yeah, it was, uh, they, it's, I was reading that he didn't even attend the premiere because he was so unhappy about it. I don't know if oh, that's sure. true or not. It was almost like in this movie they're going out of their way to not make it too scary, though. I mean, there's there are tense bits. I like the bit where the there the the guy comes into the captain and is talking about how the lieutenant guarding the creature is starting to freak out because he can see its eyes, which I think is more effective than actually seeing the guy start to freak out because he can see its eyes. And the bit by bit reveal of the monster is pretty good. Um, but, I mean, there's way too many people here for this to be frightening. I mean, it's it's just tons and tons of people. They're very rarely cut off from the rest of the group. Um, you know, the banter in the halls is nice. That's nice and tense. But it, having the creature lumber towards them slowly at the end, you know, that seems like a waste of a good opportunity. Yeah. So it works. I think it works pretty well as a sci-fi movie. It works well as, I wouldn't say a comedy, but the banter is certainly funny at places. As a horror movie, I think it falls down, but it's definitely an interesting yeah. movie. It's it's a character Th movie. It feels more like a thriller in that way than a horror movie, right? Because really, right. It, it, the tension in that hallway is way more interesting than the actual kind of action parts of it. It's the it's the tension. The tension build, I it's think, the is build good. Up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although I like the hallway scene, and I do like how it's built up, the uh, the reveal of James Arness at the end of the hall is always, a, it's lit well, you know, it happens suddenly, it, you know, we see him finally, he's backlit, he's big, he's scary, but he opens the door quickly because they have the props set up like a chair under a, under a doorknob, but with the door opening the other way, <laughs> you know, oh, he, he, <laughs> they've got the props and, and it, and what's what bothers me about that is that I'm sure that by 1951 that had already been used as a joke 
in, in a lot of movies <laughs> where, you know, somebody puts a chair under the doorknob and then the, and then the person just opens the door from the outside and it swings to the outside instead of to the inside and they walk right in. That's, that's how the monster gets in is he just opens the door. Now, I realize they have to do that because you want to see him all at once and that's the only way to see him all at once, I guess, and have the, have the backlit. But it, whenever I've seen this, I, I just, oh yeah, that's right. That happens. Oh, well, okay, fine. <laughs> Yeah, the scene with the where the lights suddenly go off, I think, is nice. I think it's resolved way too quickly and easily. It it, it provides a brief amount of tension, but it's it's all afforded by the fact that the creature is moving it's at a snail's pace. So it only just serves to highlight how how really not in jeopardy they are anytime soon. <laughs> the thing is not in a hurry to get down the hall. My sixteen year old son was watching this with me, and and that scene bothered him the most uh and it's because uh what okay carrington's got a gun and he's cut the lights in there and so okay our army guys our army air force guys walk back in to see what's going on and they okay they see carrington carrington's got a gun and then the giant scientist dr chapman who's standing next to carrington and for some he just he just takes the gun away from him I mean, there's the, you know, why didn't he do that before? Yeah. Why did he have to wait for the Air Force guys to come back in so, so that we can see? Oh, oh, the camera's out there with the Air Force guys. So, you know, the camera has to follow the Air Force guys in. And that's when he gets, you know, what he just, he suddenly got the idea. Oh, I, I should take the gun away now that the Air well, Force they guys they distracted him coming into the room so that he was able to take the gun. I, I, that's how, that's what I told my son. Uh, to but but Carrington was somehow able to shut off the generator without anybody being able to wrest the gun from him during that. Yes, that's yeah, that's it, mm. there are some problems there. I'll it's explain later. Yeah, can I can I mention <laughs> Margaret Sheridan? Um, who plays, no, you cannot. Who plays Nikki Nicholson? <laughs> yes. Okay, well then I won't. Um, I did. I I thought she did a bad job. It sounds like she has a cold and she mumbles, and I thought she wasn't very good. No, it is very she, cold there. She was not mm-hmm. in the few. She does not have many credits to her name, so I think that's a. Um, it's a B movie. Um, it is. I, I just I, I felt like we were let down because I, I feel like uh like what's his name? What is it? Kenneth Toby, the guy who plays the captain. I thought yeah, he yeah. was. I thought he was fine. Um, and then and, and especially coming off of watching um his girl Friday, right? Which I know it's a, it's a order of magnitude in some ways, but still, I, I if he had been paired with somebody who could who could do it a little bit better, but um but Margaret Sheridan, I think you know I'm sure she tried her best, but I I thought it was a bad performance, and uh, it's too bad because that that was what they were trying to do there is have that some of that back and forth, right. and I she just was mumbly and 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 had a cold. Yeah, the dynamic between them is all off. There's that that whole scene where she's not good. <laughs> she's not good. <laughs> There's that whole scene where he's coming in and he's 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 angry at her about leaving him lying drunk with some note attached to him about yeah. his beautiful legs. <laughs> yeah, and she's laughing in this weird way that doesn't seem at all like you know it was a funny joke. It's like this just weird off putting laugh, and it doesn't work at all with his responses. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a good dynamic there. She's not a good actress, but. Her character is, to me, the reason why I see this as a Howard Hawks movie, because she is essentially a low-rent slim from To Have and Have Not. She is, she's, she's, you know, she's wearing the pants, of course. Okay, yeah, fine. She's in Alaska. She's at the North Pole, so she's going to be wearing pants instead of a skirt. But if you, if you think of her as being sort of modeled, I don't remember what the, what the, 
No, it's this. This would have come second. So she's modeled after the Lauren Bacall character in uh, Into Have and Have Not, who was modeled after Howard Hawks's wife, mm. and that's that's what she is, and that's why she's always you know inappropriately coming up with quips as the monster is on his way and is going to you know kill them all. She's she's still making with the yucks uh, in the hallway. That character, as bad as she portrays her, is the is makes it a Hawks movie to me. I mean, yes, the overlapping dialogue has it, but it makes it that way. But she is really a Howard Hawks woman. Mm. Just Absolutely, badly done. Just yeah. badly yeah. done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Perhaps cast for her looks rather than her talent, because she is very pretty. She yep. just, oh, she she, she is, is lovely. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then and then yeah, not that not that great. Uh, but I, I thought this was a fun movie. I, I thought, um, I, overall, I would say I, I, I didn't think, you know, I wouldn't put it in one, as one of the greatest movies of all time or anything like that. I think that it's, it's, it's interesting to see how, how dare you, if we want to have the, um, <laughs> the idea that, that what if they had really adapted, which they, it would have been a very different movie if they had adapted the story and had the, it be this shape-shifting alien, but then they made that movie. And that was John Carpenter's The Thing, and that's a that's a classic of a different kind. But um, it was, uh, yeah, there are fun, some funny moments. But I like I like the moment out on the ice. I like the stuff with the dogs barking, which um, gets you know comes back in The Thing. Um, and uh, and I laugh at some of the army stuff. But in the end, the tension is great with the characters in the base under siege, and that that can excuse the fact that it's kind of a dumb Frankenstein at the end. The pulsating baby plants are nice and creepy. The Eskimos have a weakness for our strawberries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why an alien would, would feast on human blood is beyond me. But they also eat dog they blood. They like all blood. So, Look, I, we yeah, like blood. blood. They just need... Jason, uh, hi, I'm the alien. I like blood. I just need blood. Yeah, okay. I, I think we're overlooking one of the choicest piece, pieces of dialogue in the movie. Which is um, uh, Scotty, the reporter, whose favorite phrase is "Holy cats!" And at one point in the movie, he says, <laughs> "Holy cats!" That. And and Doctor Doctor Kerrigan goes, "Yes." I watched that last night, and I I laughed for about fifteen minutes. <laughs> I paused the movie. Yes, I, I have been using "Holy cats" ever since I saw this twenty. 20- Three, 24 oh, years holy ago. cats indeed my friend oh so the last thing we should talk about is the very end of the movie which this is this is where it comes from right yeah this is tell where this, it comes from tell this to everybody wherever they are watch the skies everywhere keep looking keep watching the skies yes. They finally reestablish radio contact with Anchorage. And, yes, Scotty uh, has a whole little Scott, uh, speech prepared. Scotty's got the story written in his brain. Yep. Yeah, he does a great... I Holy make fun of him for yeah. not taking notes the whole time, but he's got it, man. Yeah, <laughs> He really does a good first draft. He does not need a rewrite, man. He could use an editor. My father saw this in the theater yeah, when it originally um, came out, and he said, you know, it was it was creepy when he was, you know, 11 or 12 years old and watching it in the darkened theater. And and but it was that line that was just like the the creepy thing that that stuck with him for years after. Just the keep watching the sky, keep watching the sky. It is well delivered. So in, a, it in addition to being a good it line. Worked. Well, we should uh, we should wrap it up. We've been talking for a very long time about these two movies. Uh, Phil, are you satisfied with the, the discussion of the of these I, two? I am. I'm, I'm glad everyone enjoyed um, his Gal Friday, which is uh, Girl uh, Friday. Yes. Yeah, that that too. <laughs> 
What that's, not what Phil, that's not how Phil pronounces it. No, I saw his gal Friday. I don't know what movie you were looking at. <laughs> I enjoyed it with reservations, Phil. Just want to get that yeah. out there. Um, and, um, you know, that uh, people more or less enjoyed the thing uh, is sure. is happy to me. This is one of the rare old movie clubs where I'm not walking away wondering why I exist. So, <laughs> right. Excellent. So that's good. Okay, success. <laughs> We've done Yay. our job. Well, thanks to you. And, and let me thank the uh, members of our panel for, for joining us. Erica Ensign, thank you. Thank you for having me. So long, you wage slaves. <laughs> uh, David Lore, thank you. Thank you, and keep watching the old movies. <laughs> These movies are old, aren't they? Dr. Drang, thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Jason. Likewise. Monty Ashley, thank you. Man forgets hanky, mama goes to wipe nose. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Deep cuts. Steve Lutz. Thank you. My pleasure, Jason. I don't want to brag, but I still have that dimple. And in the same place. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and and Phil Michaels, I just want to remind you, there are no enemies in science, Professor. <laughs> Holy cats. Yeah. Yes. Science is never frightening. <laughs> yes. I wish you'd stop hamming. <laughs> and thanks to everybody out there for listening to the Old Movie Club. Old Movie Club. We'll see you again next week. Get out of here! That captain's got some funny ideas about old movies. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>